Welcome to Southern New Hampshire University's Social Sciences podcast, Agents of Change. Here we invite students and professionals to chat with us on topics of inclusion and diversity, student success, and their learning experiences. In this podcast, we will hear insights and personal accounts of people who have persisted against the odds and impacted positive social change. Join us as we learn how we can all be positive agents of change. Hello, this is Dr. Leman Tash, and I would like to welcome you to our live podcast about historical background of current war between Russia and Ukraine. Now, we will start with a couple of disclaimers. The Southern New Hampshire University Social Sciences Department provides this podcast for educational purposes only, and reference to any specific product or entity does not constitute an endorsement or recommendation by SNHU. The views expressed by podcast guests are their own, and their appearance on the program does not imply an endorsement of them or any entity they represent. Views and opinions expressed by SNHU employees are those of the employees and do not necessarily reflect the view of SNHU or any its officials. This event is recorded and link to the recording will be shared with all registered attendees. If you don't want to be recorded, please close your camera. And again, everybody, please keep yourself muted until you will be given an opportunity to talk. Now let's go back to our event, the main reason why we all are here. Tonight's live event will feature a panel of experts who will examine historical background for the current war between Russia and Ukraine. And I'm let's meet them. We have a group of panelists and I will give them opportunity to introduce themselves just in a minute. But in addition to them, we also have today Dr. Barb Lisniak, a senior associate dean of social sciences, and she will be facilitating chat. We have Dr. Jeff Tsarnik, uh, who is associate dean of social sciences, and Dr. Tom Anastasi, SNHU adjunct faculty and academic partner, who also will be monitoring chat and addressing all your questions that you will put in the chat. Now, dear panelists, if you could please quickly introduce yourself and tell us maybe in a couple of sentences a little bit about yourself. I see, Nathan, you unmuted yourself. Would you like to start? Certainly. Hi, everyone. I'm Dr. Nathan Martin. And I'm actually coming to you from the Charleston, South Carolina area. Yes, we did have a storm come through the other day, but everything's all right here for the most part. But uh, my interest in Russian history goes way back. I have been studying Russian history uh, for about 20 years or more at the academic level. Um, I did some of my undergrad work at Iowa State. I did my master's work at Minnesota State Mankato, and I got my PhD at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. And so it's really been a pleasure. I've had the opportunity to teach here at SNHU for about four years now, and I'm really excited about this this podcast. It's, it's a, a very important topic. Hi, everyone. I'm Dr. David Algies. I am uh, been here at SNU for about four and a half years. I teach at the Graduate Mental Health Counseling Program. Uh, my background with Russia and Ukraine is as a student in college, I studied the Russian language in St. Petersburg, Russia, way back when it was the Soviet Union. So that's been a little while. Uh, since then, I've been a part of an international charitable organization in Ukraine uh, for the past 25 years. We're getting ready to have a celebration later this week for that, as a matter of fact. Um, 
My wife and I have been involved there for some time. I think I've spent nearly two years of my life going back and forth uh, totaled uh, and being in Ukraine. I've been able to teach at some of the universities as well as speaking to their parliament a few times. So um, it's a real privilege to get to be here and to talk with everyone. Hi, um, I'm Tracy Trenum. I have a doctorate actually in Polish history during the time it was under Russian rule. So I kind of come at this sideways. And I have been at SNHU for, gee, about seven, eight years now um, teaching at the graduate school. Addison, would you like to go next? Yeah, sure. Hi, everyone. I am Allison Millward. I have been teaching at SNHU as an adjunct in um, the history program for about eight years now. Um, I've I've been interested in, um, you know, Russia and um, particularly the Soviet Union for quite some time. I did my master's work actually in that field. Um, and my bachelor's work is in government um, with particular interest in that area as well. Um, I'm working on my PhD right now, and that has a little more to do with um, nursing and, and care on the Western Front, but my interests are definitely still, um, you know, within the particular area that we'll be covering tonight. Thank you. And I think we have Olya Mangusheva left. Would you please introduce yourself to Hello, yes, my name is Olya Mangusheva. Um, I'm a Ukrainian occupational therapist. I'm currently working as assistant professor at the University of Indianapolis. Um, I am displaced in the United States from Ukraine with my family due to the ongoing war. I guess I'm here to provide an insider perspective. Yes, thank you very much. Thank you for all panelists to be here. Couple of more uh, things before we get started. Um, there are some ground rules, ground rules for panelists and ground rules for participants. For panelists, we're asking that only one person speaks at the time. We're asking that each answer is only again two, three minutes so that we can cover as many questions as possible. And of course, we're asking everybody to be respectful of all opinions because we may have a diversity of opinions here. To the participants, the very similar rules. Please be respectful of all opinions, whether when you are speaking or when you are writing in the chat. And when, if you decided to speak, please be mindful of everybody. And again, keep your comments to two, three minutes. Raise your hand when you want to speak, and then I will unmute you and you will have an opportunity to speak. And feel free to add, like, like Barb mentioned, Barb Lesniak mentioned, uh, feel free to add any comments to the chat because Barb and Lesniak and Tom Anastasi will be watching your chat and will be looking for any potential questions. We are going to start with dialogue that was actually uh, written by Tom Anastasi. It's a creative dialogue, but it's inspired by reality. Uh, and it will introduce the subject to you. Now, this dialogue will involve professional actors portrayal and it's all for discussion purpose only. Tom and Jeff, are you ready to read our dialogue? Are you ready for that? Yes, of course. Okay, then let's get started. Imagine a situation. Imagine you're somewhere in Manchester, New Hampshire. Boris Ivanov was born in Russia and Bogdan Kravchuk was born in Ukraine. They are now neighbors in Manchester, New Hampshire, and they are out in their yards. Boris Ivanov, uh, my neighbor and used to be Russian friend. 
keep your dogs out of my yard. <laughs> well, Bordan Kravchuk, if you don't want my dogs in your yard, put up a fence. A border is a border, just like Russia has no right to be in my beloved Ukraine. Uh, I think you're just mad because your relatives in Ukraine, you know, they're getting their butts kicked by superior Russian forces. Superior, yeah, right. My relatives in Ukraine just completed the biggest counteroffensive since World War II. Russia is going to lose this war. <laughs> it's not war. <laughs> it's a special military operation. They get rid of your Nazi threat. Nazi threat? <laughs> in fact, you know, the citizens of Ukraine, they asked us, they asked Russia to keep the peace and protect them from your Nazi aggression. You can't actually believe that. <laughs> NATO. NATO is to blame for wanting Ukraine to become a member. NATO never wanted them to become a member. Oh, yes, they did. Uh -huh. And NATO wants to invade Russia. Besides, only Russia can protect Ukraine from the European Union. What? The EU is Ukraine's biggest trading partner. <laughs> yeah, the EU is going to have a very cold winter without Russian natural gas and oil. Maybe, but Russia will lose billions of U.S. dollars. Oh, come on. <laughs> Russia will just sell to China and India. They're more than happy to buy their oil. Besides, Ukraine has nuclear weapons from when they were with the Soviet Union. Ukraine did have hundreds of nuclear weapons, which they gave up in 1991 in return for a non-invasion no, pledge. No, 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 no. Ukraine didn't give up the nukes. They were preparing to invade Russia. So listen, you know, Russia is just acting in self-defense. Russia cannot go into another country just because it wants it. What is this, 1939? Ukraine was never another country. Listen, Gorbachev was a fool. We don't have to listen to fools. Of course it is. Putin just wants Ukraine's land and resources. Ukrainians are Russians. Now, Putin wants to keep them safe and keep Russia from being attacked by NATO. NATO is defensive and has never attacked anyone. Oh, NATO was planning a big attack, which brave, brave Russian soldiers kept from happening. Big attack? Really? Hey, um... Is that borscht I smell cooking? Yeah, yes, uh, with pelmeni. Oh, I love those little dumplings. That's how my mother used to make it. Mm, mine too. Mm, I miss real borscht with pelmeni. All right. Wait here one minute. They each sit down with a bowl of borscht at the property line, each being in their own yard, and begin talking to each other. I admit I'm getting goosebumps, but I'm going to ask Olya what does she think about this dialogue before we move forward. Um, I appreciate the opportunity to be included in this panel discussion and to respond to this opening dialogue. I'll just say that I cannot imagine this conversation happening on the border of Ukraine and Russia. There is so much pain, so much suffering and outrage uh, on our part that the chasm between us, between the Russians and the Ukrainians is, is really insurmountable at this point. Um, and despite the fact that the media often places the responsibility for this war on Putin, um, the world has to face the reality that the majority of Russians have been supporting it. It is not Putin who has been murdering, raping, torturing, 
Ukrainian military and civilians and taking pleasure in this. Russians have watched our country be destroyed and drowned in blood. And only when this tragedy touched them personally with mobilization just recently, they started rising up, but still in small numbers. I think the dialogue we just heard highlights the key propaganda message that Ukraine is Russia. And that is exactly what Russians believe in. In their opinion, which is supported by their actions throughout history, Ukrainians are inferior. In their opinion, we are not really a separate nation. We don't really have the right for freedom or self-determination. Russians ridicule our language and culture. They rewrite our history and believe they have the right to take our land and us with this land as second-class nation of serfs. This war is genocidal and atrocious. It is saturated with so many lies, meanness and inhumanity that our grandparents who remember World War II say that the Nazis treated them better. On the territories under Russian occupation, currently anyone who is believed to be loyal to Ukraine is persecuted. Many people disappear. Russians go from home to home destroying anything that is Ukrainian. Books, national symbols. And honestly, 222 days into this, we are still in a state of shock and disbelief that such blatant genocide could be happening in the 21st century in the heart of Europe. And the reason why the world the world is talking about this war is that Ukraine is a strategic country. Now, as the Russians are humiliated by the Ukrainian army on the battlefield, it is clear that Ukraine will never surrender. And Western Europe is being cut off from natural gas. It is bullied with nuclear weapons. I think it's clear to the world that Russians have no respect for nations dependent on Ukrainian grain for survival. They could care less about world hunger or the consequences of nuclear weapons for the planet. We in Ukraine believe that this war is fueled by the insatiable imperialistic hunger, and the world needs to unite to stop this evil from spreading further. Thank you, Ole. Thank you for sharing this view. And um, I, we will come back to what you said later on, because I see some themes in what you shared just with us. and. But I want to turn a little bit to other panelists and ask them. You mentioned several factors that affect how public perceive this war, several fa factors actually that have their deeper roots in history. But turning to other panelists, what do you think in history of relations between Russia and Ukraine, what factors, one factor, a couple of factors are the most important uh, and worth mentioning? Again, whoever wants to speak, but please just limit your answers to two, three minutes. This is Dr. Trenum. Um, if I can be the devil's advocate here and take the Russian side, I would say that Ukraine is not only part of Russia, it is the heartland of Russia. It is where Russia first converted to Christianity. It is, was, is the most wealthy part of Russia in terms of land more industrialized than Russia was at the time of the revolution. Um, and it's strategically essential, particularly the warm water ports. And it was never intended 
by the Soviet Union that it should be a separate nation. It is not a separate nation. Um, the language is just a dialect of Russian. And also, its cultural heritage is that of Russia. It has no independent cultural heritage. These are all arguments that Russians have made in the past, and also Poles. Ukraine was divided between Russia and Poland for centuries. So it, um, it is a new nation, in essence, in the 20th century, and Russians don't perceive it as being a nation at all. Uh, this is Dr. Algies. Uh, thank you for the for being the devil's advocate on on several points there, I think um, at the while while in the Soviet Union, I think you could make the argument Russia didn't recognize Ukraine as a separate country. If you go back into the history of Ukraine, you'll see they're not connected directly to Russia. They're connected directly to the Scandinavian countries. Uh, furthermore, their language is not a dialect of Russian. I've studied Russian. I know Russian. Um, Ukrainian is far more closely connected to Polish than it is to Russian. So I'm, I'm not sure that's entirely accurate, but it's certainly a familiar theme we're hearing today. And as a way that that uh, Russia seems to want to destroy the culture as well as the people. Um, if you look in the history of, uh, of some of what Dr. Mangusheva said or Ms. Mangusheva said, um, there is an imperialistic ideal in the Russian culture that uh, Russians see themselves, for the most part, as superior to any of the surrounding countries. Uh, Ms. Mangusheva used the term of serfs. Um, there are other terms that are used throughout history. In, uh, in Russian culture, it supports the idea of Russian superiority. Um, you can find it in the writings of, gosh, let's see, Kokol, uh, Bulgakov, Belinsky, Turgenev, very dismissive of Ukrainian culture in particular um, as a way to dismiss, to see as less than. I think for Americans to understand this, uh, this perspective, the closest parallels I think we have in our own country's history would be the way um, Westerners coming to America saw Native Americans. Uh, they would see them as less than a whole person, certainly with our own history of African-Americans, uh, that even when freedom was granted, they were given a three-fifths person vote. Um, and, and how that impacts a culture, how that impacts uh, a country, and how we relate uh, across ethnic lines, this is the parallel in Russia and Ukraine today. Um, it, is, it is destructive. It is inaccurate. Um, and it certainly doesn't line up with the historical facts. I, I see, Olga, you're raising question. Oh, I'm sorry. If you want to speak and then definitely other panelists uh, yeah. can talk. But if you want to say something qu quickly, yeah. Yes, um, it makes me really sad and outraged, really, to hear propaganda coming from Americans. Um, it is really offensive to hear that the Ukrainian language is not a language. I think um, it requires some further studying of linguistics. And when you mentioned that Russia, that Russia was there before Ukraine or Russia was in place of Ukraine, that that's not really our territory. I think um, I would advise to read up on the Kiev Rus. It was the ancient state in the heart of Europe. 
Um, and Kyiv Rus, um, and Rus as the term was actually the term to denote those the peoples who lived in that territory. Now, ironically enough, Russians have taken that term to use for their country. Um, and so there is a misconception that Rus was Russian. But Rus is the term that belongs to Ukrainians as much as it belongs to Belarusians and to the European Russians. Um, so I guess the facts are the historic facts that I would point um, our participants and listeners to, to really study what Kiev Rus was about. It was the cradle of our nation. It was in the heart of Europe. Ukrainians, our ancestors, um, shared familial ties with monarchies in Western Europe, France, the UK. Um, and if just to give you an idea, Kiev is 1500 years old, over 1500 years old. Moscow didn't appear on the map until much later. It's only 800 years old. So when we talk about Russians, they came from Kiev Rus. We did not come from Russia. Thank you, Ole. And uh, let me see, do I, do I see any other hands? Um, Tracy, I see your hand, maybe again quickly, and then we'll, we're going to move to student questions. Okay, I just wanted to emphasize, this was not my point of view. I was speaking from the Russian point of view. I certainly do not think that Ukrainian is not a, a, a unique culture and language in itself. Um, but I do think it's important to emphasize that the Russians think that they are protecting fellow Orthodox people who belong to them, much like, incidentally, Hitler thought he was protecting German people when he invaded um, Czechoslovakia and Poland. And I think there are some really important historical precedents in that and what Putin thinks he's doing. So thank you, Olya, for, for clarifying the, the true history. If I could just jump in quickly. Um, the, the dynamic that I see that's most significant here is the the Russian inclination to intervene in Eastern Europe. That has a long history. It goes back centuries, literally. And um, I think one of the big problems right now is in the, the post-Soviet era. There's a lot of uncertainty, and there were a lot of questions about what was going to happen. And one of the things that we see Russia kind of perceiving at this stage is kind of a zero-sum game. It's a winner-take-all type of event. You need influence here, and if you're not able to win influence here in the Ukraine, you're going to wreck it. You're going to try to make make it as nasty as possible, and I think that's part of what's going on here, that Putin is trying to basically almost engage in a type of scorched-earth policy just to make it difficult for the West to actually influence the Ukraine as a whole. Thank you, Nathan. I, I definitely would, 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 would like to come back to our panelists, but I also want to see if students have any questions, if there are any questions that are coming up from students. If not, we, we, we can continue with uh, panelists. I saw raised hands before. If anybody, George, I'm, I'm afraid to mispronounce your name, Jodri, would you like to unmute yourself and ask a question? Yes, thank you very much for that. Um, so this is th this ongoing conflict between Russia and Ukraine is actually um, it's actually the the uh, subject of the topic that I'm uh, 
discussing in History 100 right now. Um, and I chose it because of the various historical contexts that can be thrown in there as well. I know um, back in 1941 when Germany invaded Russia, um, actually not Russia, the Soviet Union, uh, please forgive me for that, uh, the people of Ukraine literally stood in the streets and cheered the, the, the advancing German soldiers as uh, liberators, only to find out that, yeah, well, m maybe they weren't. Uh, and I'm, and so, you know, moving forward now, I'm hearing that, uh, there's been several referendums in, um, the, uh, eastern, uh, provinces of, uh, Ukraine where they have, uh, voted for annexation by Russia, um, w you know, which would lead me to, to, you know, to see, you know, parallels um, in, uh, in in the response of the people from 1941 and now. But my question is, and this would be uh, mostly for uh, Olya, if, if I may, um, do you see that as being true or is that just more propaganda coming out of Russia? Thank you. Thank you for your question. Again, any panelists who would like to take it, please. Thank you, George, for the question about those referendums. Um, all of a sudden, since many, um, several millions of Ukrainians left those territories, uh, but it, when, when the Russians did their referendums, there appears to be much more population in those territories as a result of their referendum. So question, where did they get those people? Um, second, I really would have a hard time believing any referendum that is taken um, at the point of a gun, even if those people were there. If, you know, um, people are threatened um, with guns and um, they're asked to vote, um, I, I, I would really doubt this is a true vote, even if some people voted. But I don't think any voting actually happened. This is what the Ukrainians uh, see. No voting. Everything is fabricated. Um, and to uh, it's it's such a big lie, just like many of other lies that we hear from the Russians. And may I just jump uh, to Lamans, your your first question about the historical roots. When we say in Ukraine that this war is genocidal, we don't just lightly take that word. Um, the, the Russian genocide of the Ukrainian nation has really long roots in our history. And this goes back to Zaporizhia Sich, if you know, the Cossack state that was flourishing in, in Ukraine. Um, Zaporizhia, maybe you hear that uh, city now because it has the Europe's largest nuclear power plant. So it was destroyed by Catherine the Great um, in the 1800s. Then we fast forward and I skip a lot of events. Holodomor of 1932-33 is the great artificial famine created by the Soviets, the Russians, which was specifically targeting Ukrainians in which five, at least five millions of Ukrainians were starved. Then we can look at the gulags and the systemic destruction of our nation during the Soviet regime. So, you know, we just don't see the evolution of Russians past the Soviet Union. Um, it still feels like 
they're still yearning for that empire. And Ukraine is really not the only nation that has suffered. You look at the Tatars in the Crimea. Tatars were deported by millions out of Crimea. The Crimean Peninsula is actually an autonomous republic of Ukraine. It doesn't belong to Ukraine. They chose to be a part of Ukraine as autonomous republic, enjoying all the rights and freedoms that they have up until the Russians came and started again persecuting the Tatars. Look at the Baltic countries, Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia, or even look at Chechnya, Ichkeria, or Georgia. All of us will share the same thread, the same, you know, red line, bloody line of Russian occupation. So this is what history is telling us. This is what history is showing us. It's not opinions. It is facts from history. Thank you, Ola. Um, any other panelists would like to add something before we take another question from students? This is Tracy. I'd like to just point out a, a historical trivia. Um, Herbert Hoover was instrumental in getting famine relief to the Soviet Union in that period. That's how he came to public opinion and became president. So America has a long history of helping Ukraine. Thank you. Thank you, Tracy. Just a couple um, things about the referendum. Um, there are two big reasons why I think Putin's doing it. The first one is this plays really well back home. This helps his argument that, look, these people want to be part of Russia. This gives a certain justification to him for doing what he's doing. Secondly, this plays well in the international scene where countries who are very much anti-Western can, can kind of get behind a type of UN motion of self-determination for these different groups who Putin identifies as Russian. And that gives him all the more weight behind what he's doing. So I think it plays both domestically and internationally. And to add to that, it gives him the right to use nuclear weapons, because if we are attacking Russia, quote unquote, um, but part of Ukraine, but that they're pretending to be annexing, this gives them the right to use nuclear weapons. Thank you. And I'm loving this conversation because we see here a mixture of the facts and how these facts are actually interpreted by different political leaders and how some facts are sometimes used as manipulated right and turn upside down and turn into excuses for different claims so i thank you very much for all panelists um let's uh, quickly look at the chat barb tom do we have any questions from students in the chat we do um nicole m asks <clears throat> excuse me my daughter has a friend in ukraine who is trying to explain why the ukraine is offensive and it needs to be referred to as ukraine instead why is that? And I love that because the panelists were talking about this beforehand. So I'll turn it over to them to explain that. Whoever from the panelists would like to take it. It's the same reason that we don't say the Netherlands, but rather Netherlands. Ukraine in several Slavic languages, including Polish and Russian, means the border. And I suspect they did not like to be referred to as the border. Um, I would actually add maybe another layer to that. Um, the Ukraine is how the Soviet Union referred to Ukraine as a region of the Soviet Union rather than an independent nation or an independent people. Um, it's the same reason that you'll hear uh, the name Kiev, that's Russian, Kiev is Ukrainian. Um, it, is, it is simply part of the uh, erasing of a culture uh, that Russia 
began some time ago and we've just all grown up with. So it feels very normal. Um, a tiny correction. Russians don't have articles. They don't say the, a, or an. But your point is well taken about it being a part of. Well, they, that's, let's not get lost in semantics, though. That's part of the Russian policy is to refer to it as the Ukraine. Thank you. Um, we can take maybe one more question from students. And then uh, I would like to ask our panels the questions that we received uh, from students earlier when I asked, like earlier this week, when I asked all registered participants to email me. I see something here from Bruce Helen. Would you like to unmute yourself, maybe ask it in person, or I can also read it, whatever you would prefer. Hi, yeah, Bruce Helen here. Uh, again, as you watch this, this terrible war unfold, uh, as a retired military officer, it's shocking to me how poorly the Russian leaders and the, the Russian equipment has, has performed. Uh, uh, and so when you look at that, anyone in the world that, that's honest will have to look at that. And, and it must be an enormous embarrassment to uh, uh, Putin. Uh, so my question to the panel is, uh, uh, while, while you can kid yourself about some things, but the, in the dark of the night, you still admit some realities to yourself. And when you've performed as poorly as they have now, how unstable do you feel? And this is the, you know, million dollar question everyone wants to know and everyone's looking to a crystal ball to try to figure out how unlikely or how likely is it that he has truly gone off to the deep end enough to try to salvage some shred of dignity for Russia and resort to something as horrific as a nuclear weapon. Thank you. Thank you for your question. Any panelists again, whoever wants to. I think it's a great question. Um, I would offer kind of an alternative view. I'm, I'm the historian in me is always very skeptical of immediate battlefield reports, and uh, some of those actually I don't think have been properly vetted. And so even though I do believe the Russians have their their heels back, they're not doing great. Um, I think the situation may not be as bad as Western media presents in some cases. That said. Um, I think kind of picking out the motivations of what Putin was trying to do in the first place uh, does need to be raised. Uh, he invaded with under 200,000 troops. That isn't a force sufficient enough to actually take the entire country, as I understand it from the military people I've spoken to, that they would need a force triple or quadruple that in order to effectively occupy the totality of the Ukraine. Um, so I think that issue uh, needs to be raised. However, I think if that was the original intent, the fact that it's not going very well for Putin is not necessarily a good thing for the West because it puts him in a position where he's cornered and he's much more likely, as you state, to use some type of tactical nuclear weapon, which of course is gonna unleash havoc. So um, it's a point well taken. And I just want to add, I, I think you make excellent points as well. I, I just kind of want to add to that and the disinformation that comes out of Russia, right? Like part of that propaganda. And I think sometimes what builds fear, um, of, especially with people kind of listening in and they may not, you know, kind of understand the region completely, is the thought that, you know, we may all know Putin's losing, but we're also getting so much 
conflicting information, disinformation, all these things coming in from actually, you know, uh, a, a lot of Russian media is playing into that and people are buying that, that you know, he sounds tough and it sounds scary, um, you know, and, and anything can happen at any moment. Um, and it, it doesn't necessarily put Putin in a, a good light, but it does put him in a threatening light. Oh, like this man could actually do this. Um, and I think, you know, it's, is it possible he could use nuclear weapons? Sure. Is it probable? It's hard to know, especially with so much dis disinformation out there. If I may also provide our perspective, um, you know, speaking about the number of uh, the, the troops that were gathered initially, their, their goal was to get Kiev, and uh, they were not trying to really get the entire country. This would not be sufficient. But they were surprised at the resistance of the Ukrainians because um, literally not just them, the whole world was surprised because we hear of accounts of Western European leaders talking to our leaders probably hours after the invasion asking, so what is your capitulation plan? What are you going to do next? Nobody expected Ukraine to fight. So that's about that. Um, I agree uh, about the equipment not doing as bad. Um, unfortunately, the Russians are using their equipment and they are killing so many people, so many wounded, so many um, yeah, so many wounded people. No, I can say something. Uh, the, the veterans. Um, if, I, if I may finish, please. And also um, about the morale and how the Russians or the Ukrainians are doing in battlefield, there is a big difference between people trying to liberate their country and having that, you know, morale, uh, knowing that they're standing with the good um, and comparing that to those Russian soldiers, many of them don't even know why they were there, why they were sent there. Um, uh -huh. And and about humiliation, we watch the news and every time our uh, armed forces are taking new territories, there is a bit of a growing anxiety every time because it is increased humiliation for the Russians. And yes, I think increased humiliation is going to put them in the That's position the more likely to be using nuclear weapons. Okay, okay let's, let's, let's speak one person at a time, please. Just one person at a time. In this way, we will be able to hear each other. I'm going to go away. One person at a time. If you want to speak, you're welcome to speak, but let's not interrupt each other because otherwise we're not hearing each other. Um, can somebody hear me? Yes. Okay, so I'm from Russia originally, and there is a lot of people that misunderstand what exactly going on. When that stuff happened, nobody were talking about Donbass, Donetsk, Lugansk. Nobody were talking about it, how innocent people dying by the Ukrainian, I would say, Nazi, which a lot of people do not believe that is really happening. I have my family who's in the military, and all of a sudden, when everything started happening, Everybody all of a sudden started being an expert in the situation, but nobody's really know what is really was going on in 2014. So that is really for me, it is really crazy how people just have an assumption watching the news and reading the things online, but they don't really know exactly what is going on back there. So what do you have? Do you know exactly what's going on? What happened in Donetsk in 2014? 2015, how 57 children died, innocent children, innocent women, innocent citizens, and all of a sudden everybody just became an expert in everything. So what do you have to say on that, Olya? Uh, if I oh, can my... add, 
I, I can I can respond. Well, first of all, I am from Ukraine. I live in Ukraine and I know what's going on in Ukraine. Um, second, what happened in Donetsk, nothing would have happened if the Russians did not invade Ukraine in 2014 and 57 children would not die and the women would not die. Also, for eight years, this, this war has been going on and this has been going on because the Russians have been supplying the weapons. So, um, I guess I guess about the Nazi um, comment, my question is, where are the proofs? What are the facts about the Nazis? And if people, I know there are many arguments from the Russian side, lies like the Russians are there to protect the Russian-speaking population. Um, it is such a big lie because half of Ukraine, regardless of the geographic location, is, speaks Russian. My family members speak Russian as their primary language. Our president was chosen and he is Jew, a Jew who speaks Russian. So uh, my question to you is, how could a Nazi country choose a Russian speaking Jew for the president? OK, thank you. First of all, thank you very much for everybody for expressing their views. And it's we are in a debate where, yes, there are different sources of information, different sites. I the, I would like to move actually to the next question. But before I move. Just to make it clear, yes, I'm also coming from the country which is in war right now. And one thing that I learned in whenever there is a war, there are two sides that are dying and that are killing each other. So if we're going to speak about death and suffering, both sides are suffering. So when what is right and what is wrong, that's a different debate. But in terms of misery, there, the misery goes on both sides. Mothers, fathers in both sides are losing their children. And I'm just going to move because we can talk about it forever. But this is something that I experience and I feel pain of both sides. My pain is irrelevant for this subject, but I feel the pain because I have family members who are also refugees and displaced people. And I know how it feels. And it's very hard to it's very hard to see that there are always two sides, the wars in, in wars. Now, why I want to move to the questions, because if. Everybody who is here remember earlier this week I asked students to email me some questions and we got a lot of emails. So maybe I want to ask a couple of questions from those emails to address to cover those students too. And one of the questions was in relation to something that we kind of covered, right? It's about political regimes or relations between governments and people. Now, Russia and Ukraine's post-Soviet history has very different patterns of relations, right, between governments and people. And the question is, does it have any impact on the current war? And if you think that it does, what is this impact? And this is a question again to any panelists, whoever wants to take it. This is Tracy. I would say that's a really smart observation by that student. Russia has reverted to an age-long worship of the Vojd, of the leader, of the, and they you know, they went off the democratic track as much as the United States believed they would be a democracy. They clearly are not. Ukraine took a different path. Um, and they, for whatever historical reason, they had a more democratic mindset, culture than the Russians. The Russians distrust authority, but they want authority as a great cultural generalization. And they have a very ancient history of authority, of um, samodzierzavia, of, of autocracy. And they got it by whatever, by whatever label. 
Thank you, Tracy. Thank you, anyone great. else? Yeah, Nathan. Right after 1991, there was a big question that was looming. Could Russia buck its history and start from scratch and create a civil society based on democratic tradition? And I think the answer at this point is no. Um, it wasn't going to happen. Now, that said, I don't know that that was inevitable. I think probably from the historical analysis in 50, 100 years from now, the, the historians then will look back and see that it's really uh, a failure of the Western nations to actively and positively engage Russia so that these types of crises and scenarios don't occur. And so I think it's definitely not something that's happening in a vacuum. This is a, a long evolutionary process. And so, um, you know, I don't think Putin woke up one day and just said, I'm going to invade Ukraine. I think there's a there's a much deeper set of security issues that have to be raised. Well, we've seen we've we've seen that issue um, because, you know, in my experience um, teaching Western civilization, we've actually seen that that issue occur with many Western societies that try to pull away from, you know, the crown and try their own civil democratic society. And what we've know what we know is that they really do struggle. They absolutely struggle with it. Even um, even England, right? Right after the English Civil War, they absolutely struggled with it. And what we know is, you know, it's hard to try and do something when you don't really know what it looks like. And I think somebody had actually said it earlier that Russians have that experience with both distrusting authority, but also wanting to be ruled over it, right? And they kind of, they fell into the pattern of history um, in, in some ways because we just kind of thought, oh, Cold War over. It's supposed to be this great moment for, you know, the West and everything. And we really didn't see that in the 90s and, and 2000s. And in fact, they reverted to the other similar societies that we saw throughout Western civilization. I think the difference with the Ukraine, and please correct me if I'm wrong, is that they they know what it feels like in a lot of ways to be conquered by that authority. And it seems to me like they they learned the lesson and they said, we don't want this to happen again. And we don't want to do this to ourselves. Right. So you kind of have those two like branches. Russia is just like, all right, we, you know, Cold War ended. Let's try to do this. This didn't work. Right. So we're going to revert back to what we know, which, again, is what a lot of Western societies did. And Ukraine actually took history and said, no, we we did learn and it might be tough and we might stumble, but we're going to try and go that other route because we know that feeling. We know that um, that that idea of what it looks like when other people try to come in and create chaos and, and say that we're creating chaos for your benefit, um, but it's really just them trying to, you know, create authoritarian rule again. So those are excellent points. Thank you so much for that, that point of view. And I think it depends, like the relationship between people and the government. The big question is who is serving who? I think in Russia, the people are serving their government. They're subdued. And in Ukraine, we believe that our government should serve us. And there's a big, big difference. Like, I'll give you an example. We, um, when a group of students was beaten up by the police during a peaceful protest back in 2013, at the end of 2013, going into 2014, millions rose up and revolution happened. 
And that's what happens in Ukraine. And now we see Russia. And yes, I empathize with the Russians uh, who are losing their family members. I empathize with those who are against this war, but they're stuck in their land, in their country that is governed by autocrats. Um, I empathize with them, but still they're in a minority, unfortunately, because they have thousands, tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of their soldiers dying and hardly anybody's protesting because they're afraid. Well, um, you can't tell that to Ukrainians. We were afraid too, uh, but we still went out in the streets and did our people die? Yes, the heavenly hundred in 2014, over a hundred people were shot by snipers during the revolution, but we kept going because we were the majority. So I think the relationship between the, the people and the government is very key. And I applaud that student who, who raised that question as well. Thank you very much. Thank you for panelists. It's a wonderful conversation. I'm learning so much more, but we are nine minutes to our finish time. So I would like to wrap up, to start wrapping up. And by the way, Dr. Hector Garcia shared a link to the podcast. Uh, with participation of Dr. David Ogdes, who is with us today. Please check it out. It's um, part of the series on the role of international counseling in Ukraine, the current war in Ukraine. So if you're interested in this region, you will find that podcast very interesting too. And the link is right now in the chat. Now, maybe last question that we received from students, and that is, we can wrap up with this question was, we talked right throughout for this last hour, we talked about complex relations in history between Russia and Ukraine. Now, regardless the outcome of this war, does it have, do you think this conflict has any permanent solution? That is my question again to any panelists who would like to take it. I don't, this is Tracy, I don't think it's inevitable that there be this conflict between these neighbors, but I think it's not going to stop as long as we have Putin and his cohorts. Putin has a lot at stake here um, in terms of national pride and so forth. I'm not sure I believe that the majority of Russians support this war. I think that we don't know enough to, to be able to say that, but please God, if enough Russians don't want constant conflict, um, I think peace is possible. I think just going, oh, I'm sorry. Did I interrupt? Go ahead, go ahead. Okay, I think just going back to my previous comments, I, I don't wanna make a definitive answer, but I think what I wanna say is that it's possible, but there has to be a lot of change. Um, there's going to be, you know, growing pains and there's going to be hiccups. But like I say, like whenever a major opportunity for change comes forth, you have a choice as a nation and it's either learn from the past and move on despite those growing pains or revert back to what you know. And so what these, these, especially for Russia, right? What they have to do is if, if we really want lasting peace, it's a lot of learning instead of reverting back to what you know. And it's going to take, again, a lot of work and a lot of effort. And my concern is, you know, especially just because I am concerned with things like Russia's disinformation campaign and, you know, all of that, is that there's just so much scattered thoughts and conflicting ideas and, you know, things pulling people in, in different directions that 
it might not happen that that they don't that they don't kind of take a look at actually what truly is going on and learn from that. So unfortunately, that's my historian non-answer answer. But <laughs> but I guess my my last words would be it just it would take so much work and it really it are they up for it? Um, it would be my question to you know anybody who would who would want change in that region, um, especially in regards to Russia. Thank you, Amy. Other panelists would like to answer this last question of this live session. I just agree with the prior panelists. It's going to take years. It's not going to be a, a quick and easy thing. Um, I think there has to be administration changes. I think there has to be turnover of high-ranking positions in, in many different countries in order for uh, a permanent peace to be achieved. There was a hope at one time that there could have been a meaningful treaty with the with the uh, Russian Federation, and that hope has has been lost. So um, gaining that trust back, gaining some working relationship, uh, is not on the table right now. So it's it's a difficult situation. Well, and if I might add to to what both of the previous speakers have said, uh, it it's going to require a culture shift on uh, the individual level in the country of Ukraine, especially with European, I'm sorry, in the country of Russia, especially with uh, European Russians, uh, just as it has here in America. Uh, we keep going through reiterations of what does it mean to be treated as equal? What does it mean to not be racist? What does it mean uh, that everyone has a seat at the table? Uh, Russia hasn't begun that. But one thing that is hopeful that Russia has in the culture that it hasn't had for some time is a very strong middle class. Uh, people who do not want to go back to what it was like to live in the Soviet Union, people who don't want to give up their Starbucks and their AirPods and their new lifestyles to which they become not only accustomed, but but whole generations have been born into. They've not known otherwise. And to have that threatened can be very motivating. So perhaps there's a hope there as well. If I may also jump in, um, this question is not hypothetical for me. It is a, a very personal question of life and death for my nation, for my country. So it is very close to my heart. Um, and I wish I could say, yes, you know, there is a permanent resolution for this. But when we even use the term Russia, do we realize that it is the Russian Federation that is the land, the huge country that is comprised of many nations colonized nations, the majority of which are Asian nations, or not even Slavic nations. So until that empire exists and those people, those nations whose languages and cultures are being destroyed currently by Russia, nobody's talking about, you know, Bashkiria or Ichkeria, you know, everybody is just mentioning Russia. So until that mindset of imperialism is away, I don't know if, if much can be achieved. And I think Russia has to be incapacitated as the international bully, as the aggressor and as the colonizer. And until that happens, there is high probability of this happening again. And all of my family and friends are saying the same thing. What are the what are the chance? What, what where's the guarantee that after this war, there's not going to be another one? There has to be first peace punishment, just punishment and restitution and acknowledgement by Russia of all the war crimes against humanity that it has committed, standing the trial in international courts. I think this is what needs to happen. And I think we as international community, we need to come up with alternatives to like the United Nations organizations that will actually work. Because right now, United Nations organizations 
is not really doing much for peace worldwide. And somehow this imperialistic ambitions need to be suppressed. And 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 I think, again, it's not just about Ukraine. It's about the, the whole planet. It's about the whole world, because we see that the war in Ukraine has consequences in each part of this planet. And so this is a task for each one of us, even though we might be physically removed, geographically removed away from Europe, from Western Europe, it is affecting each one of us. Thank you. We are at the time. We have two minutes left. And I would like to thank all panelists one by one uh, for your insights. It was a wonderful discussion. And I love the fact that we don't have to agree to have this wonderful conversation and to exchange our ideas. That was the, the best that I've witnessed. Thank you for coming here. Thank you for expressing uh, yourself and thank you for enlightening us about things that we hear, we read in different light. I also would like to thank especially for Tom for writing this script. I, I think it was very insightful because it included all issues all together in one little two, three minutes. And Jeff for helping us to bring it to life. I would like to thank Barb for watching chat and ma making sure that we included all these questions. And most of all, I would like to thank everybody who came today and participated in this conversation. And I do hope, I know we could stay for another hour, but I do hope that even during this hour, you learned something, you, you had some aha moment and you looked and you said, oh my God, maybe I should check something and I should look at something different. Look at our chat, uh, see, we shared with you some resources, check them later again, depending on where your time is. But for now, again, thank you for everybody for being here. I don't know what time is it, wherever you are, but I wish you to have a wonderful rest of the night, date, whatever it is, wherever it is. And we hope to see you in more live podcasts and live lectures. Bye-bye, everybody. Thank you for listening to Southern New Hampshire University's Agents of Change, a social sciences podcast. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast, rate and review us, and be on the lookout for more exciting episodes. Goodbye for now.